0: So how about this? How about we open our Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapter 12, and then you can put your finger there and then jump forward to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, what I want to do is just kind of set this up very quickly, and then I will pray, and then we'll get to work. So. One of the things that we've been doing for the past several weeks is a teaching series that's connected to what we're calling the Year of Biblical Literacy, which we've gone through the routine over and over again, which is number one, it's a through-the-Bible reading program, Genesis to Revelation. Many of you guys are involved with doing that, and if you are doing that right now, we should be around towards the end of the book of Numbers. Uh, end of the book of Numbers. So if you are still on track with that, congratulations. You're doing a great job. If you're a little bit behind... No guilt, no shame, do what you can, either get caught up or just jump into the area where you should be already caught up and just keep reading along. Uh, secondly, it is a through-the-year Bible reading program that we are doing in community, which means that we've got a lot of community groups, small groups, that are gathered together throughout the week that are studying Scripture together, going through the curriculum that the uh, Year of Biblical Literacy people have provided. So if you want more information about that, just go to our website, calvarycelor.com. There is a Y-O-B-L YOBL. Uh, link as well, or forward slash yobl, and all the information is on there if you would like to check that out as well. And what we did at the beginning of the year is we said that we wanted to do a series of teachings, uh, one, to help equip you to read the Bible well, to give you tools to know how to read the Bible. Um, Secondly, we finished that series, and now we're basically looking at the entire Bible 30,000 feet above So what we are attempting to do now is to go from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation in the next six weeks, which actually is now turning into seven weeks, uh, to look at the entire Bible, the entire, what we would call the narrative arc of the entire Bible. What is the Bible actually all about? And we've been saying this from the very beginning, is that we believe the Bible is not just simply one book, but it's a series of 66 books or a library of 66 books that tell one Unified story about what God is up to in this world to redeem, to heal, to save, to rescue this world from its deep brokenness. So two weeks ago, what we did is we started in the book of Genesis and we looked at the beginning. And we basically said in the very beginning, this is the story of God's kingdom beginning on planet Earth. That God created this earth and he created it to be like a temple, that, to be a place that houses his glory. And to do that, God also created an image bearer, uh, an image to live within this temple, just like all the other ancient temples and pagans type things. But this is not a pagan. This is the true and living God that creates all things and fashions them according to his own purposes and will. And in that garden, God creates human beings. Human beings want to partner with God, to cooperate, to literally co-operate with God, to work with God, to make something of beauty and significance and value Uh, with their hands in this world. In order to do that, you needed a lot of human bodies in order to do this well. So God gives them this unique gift of human sexuality to become, quote-unquote, fruitful and multiply. And so what we see ultimately with the story there is that Adam and Eve, uh, which is what we looked at last week, is that this kingdom that God created ultimately rebels against him. So rather than embracing the vocation, the call of God to embrace the cooperative uh, c- collective with God to make something beautiful. Adam and Eve, uh, who are sort of the, uh, the, the paradigmatic uh, human beings that all of us follow in the same pathway as Adam and Eve, that all of us have become rebels. We turn against God. Rather than saying yes to God, rather than partnering with God, rather than giving our hearts and our lives and our motives and our understanding and the things that are able to understand about God, and the very things that we don't even understand about God, rather than trusting this God in partnership, we've distrusted him. And as a result of distrust, we've become uh, rebels against this God. And so the kingdom, what we saw last week, was this kingdom rebels. Now we kind of pick it up into the storyline. We begin to see that God does not just simply let this world follow the narrative or follow the arc in which itself is set forth, the trajectory which is set forth towards destruction and devastation and ruin, because what we said from the very beginning is a path or a journey away from God is not a path or a journey towards greater life and light and love, as we oftentimes assume. You know, so this is is like, say, the college freshman student that's like, I've grown up knowing about God, but my freshman year, I'm going to run away from God, I'm going to find a great life, I'm going to find great happiness, I'm going to find more love outside of my understanding of who God was, but what you end up discovering is there's not greater level of love and light and relationship, what you end up discovering is there's greater darkness and greater death and greater experiences of alienation. Because to move away from God, a journey away from God, is a journey towards death, darkness, and alienation. And yet God, because he, by his nature, is love, he rescues, he ransoms, he redeems. And this is what we see now as we see God picking up the story. Rather than letting human nature go towards its trajectory of death and brokenness, God steps into the story and begins to bring about renewal. And this is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12, looking at a man by the name of Abraham. So what I want to do right now is I want to pray, and then we will begin to get to work. And as soon as I'm done praying, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. You will need them today because we will be taking a look at a bunch of different passages and For the main body of scripture that we have, actually, it's not up on the screen, so you'll have to have a Bible, or you can share with a neighbor. So let me pray. Ushers will come forward. Raise your hand if you need a Bible, and then we will begin to jump in and take a look at this story. God, we, right now, we just want to pause and just reflect upon your goodness and think about who you are, that you are a God that has not abandoned us. You are a God that seeks after us, not because we are lovely, But in spite of our unloveliness, God, you, you who are lovely, choose to rescue and ransom and redeem and save us so that we can then become lovely, be made transformed. God, you love us. I pray this morning that you would show us in brand new ways from different angles the level, the depth, the breadth of the love that you have for us. So, God, we give you this morning and we pray that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see all the things that you have for us to learn this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, raise your hand if you guys need a Bible. We'll get you one. So what I want to do this morning is, is there's one big main word that I want to focus on. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a Bible word, it's definitely a Bible word, and it's a word that we don't really use very often in modern day language, except for maybe one particular area within modern culture, and I would even say within modern culture, that's typically used within a religious context. And I would even go so far as to say, this one word that we're going to look at here today is probably one of the top three most significant, most important words in the entire Bible. Any guesses? Oh my gosh, who'd said that? That was really good. All right, that was like, that was a grand slam, like right out, so good job. She stole all your thunder, you're welcome. Good job, covenant, that's the word. So the fact of the matter is we don't, is it, did it, oh, you guys put it up there? Oh, good, Whew, okay. Covenant, that's the big word that we wanna look at. And the fact of the matter is, is we don't really use this word that often. I mean, there's a handful of words that oftentimes I think within Christian circles we use a lot. And I would even say we overuse them to the point where they kind of lose their significance. And there's other words that are Bible words that we're not super familiar with. We kind of have some sort of a distant relationship with them. But for the most part, we don't really know them. But I would suggest that this word, you've got to know this word. Like this is one of the most significant words in the entire Bible. And I would go so far as to say is that the entire Bible is framed by this word. You cannot understand the Bible, apart from this word. The the Old Testament is filled with this word. The entire Old Testament is really the storyline of of Israel, who is in covenant with God, which you'll see. Uh, They're breaking this covenant constantly, and yet God, Yahweh, is constantly coming back to restore, reorder. Uh, Jesus himself even uses this particular word, so it's very... Important word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be going to take a look at this particular word, and then we'll begin to get into the storyline of how this word plays into the overarching narrative. What we basically describe of God beginning again His kingdom project through a particular man by the name of Abraham, and then ultimately through a handful of others as well as he reaffirms it. So number one, let's jump in and take a look at the word covenant. So let's geek out a little bit. There are two words that are used here. One is the Hebrew word, which is the original Old Testament writing of the entire Bible. And then in the New Testament, you have the Greek. So it's the, old, uh, or the Hebrew word berit, and the New Testament diethike, And basically it means this. It's a formal relationship between two parties who agree to a set of promises that they can work together toward a common goal. So that's kind of a generic. So when you think of the idea of covenant, it's not exclusively to describe a covenant between God and humanity. It does involve that. But this word also has a very broad meaning as well. So here's a couple other ways. I think I have a slide up here as well to kind of give you some other examples of this. So for example, you have about five of them right up there. Abraham and Abimelech. Um, in Genesis chapter 21, it says they make this formal agreement about digging wells and uh, establishing some sort of a formal agreement through that. Isaac and Abimelech, David and Jonathan, David and the elders of Hebron. so on. You get the idea. So the point that I would just simply make is this, is that the idea of a covenant is very common language in ancient culture and ancient society. Next, I want to uh, go to the next slide and just continue to think about this. So typically throughout the Bible, there's, there's a handful of different types of covenants that, are, that happen. So here's a handful of them. So first of all, Adam and Eve, even though the word covenant is not used to necessarily distinguish or uh, specifically describe the type of relationship that God had with Adam and Eve, some scholars would kind of include this into this because of the type of language in which it's actually employed or used within Genesis chapter 1 through 3. I don't want to spend too much time thinking about that. But you have Noah. We looked at him last week. God makes his covenant with Noah. And typically, the way this would work with God in humanity is God would basically describe the terms of the covenant. He would say, Here's the type of relationship that I want to be in with you, and here's what I want you to do, and here's what I will do. Does that follow? Does that make sense? Is it all right? Okay. So, uh, with, for example, Noah, God basically requires nothing from Noah. Um, and God just simply says, what my covenant is with you is actually not only with you, but with all humanity. I will never bring a judgment upon the planet the way I did with the flood. And to demonstrate the, uh, the, the impact of this covenant, the sign of the covenant was what? Rainbow. God puts a... Uh, uh, you know, a rainbow in the sky is a way in which God is saying, this is a sign. This is a way of demonstrating that I'm going to be good. I'm going to keep faithful to my covenant. And then we look at Abraham and Israel and then David. And then ultimately Jesus is kind of the, the, the big covenant. So what I want to really look at is the next slide. Uh, the main big covenants that we'll take a look at are Abraham And then Israel, and then uh, lesser degree David, but then ultimately Jesus, and we'll kind of end there. So with that being said, I'm going to just jump right in and begin to take a look at, first of all, the relationship that God has with Abraham. So let's jump in. Next slide. We see this. So, for example, in this particular context, we see, and we'll read these passages in just a second, but on God's part, God makes his promise to Abraham. And he says, God promises to bless Abraham. He will have a huge family, and he will inherit a promised piece of land, a.k.a. the promised land, right? So where you get the name promised land from. is It's a piece of property that God promises to this guy by the name of Abraham, otherwise known as originally as Abram. And it says, and somehow God will bring his blessing to all humanity through his family. So you can see the various ways in which Abraham has a particular part to this. So he trusted God in his promises. We'll read this in just a moment. Another sign is in verse 17 is Abraham is to have all of his family, his household, circumcised. If you have no idea what that is, Wikipedia that. Uh, Genesis chapter 18, God also asks Abraham to train up his family so they would basically live according to justice and be in right standing relationship with God as well following his commands. So with that being said, I'm going to jump right now into the story. I'll give you a free bonus verse. Uh, before we jump into the main body of passages that we'll be taking a look at. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to just read this. And why don't you just listen to this, because this is, uh, remember, we picked up last week, or I should say we ended up last week in Genesis chapter 11, where it basically describes what we are commonly known, or what we commonly known as the Tower of Babel. So literally, literally God divides the earth. The, The earth is literally just filled with wickedness and evil. And so at the end of chapter 11, you're left wondering, is, is this the future of all humanity? Wickedness, evil, brokenness, destruction, devastation, or is there an alternative? Or is there something new that's going to happen? And then we enter into Genesis chapter 12 where we begin to see God now focusing on one particular human being, not because he's any any particular value, but because God's looking for a partnership. He's looking for human, uh, a human or human beings to partner with, just like he did at the very beginning, So that through this relationship, God will then begin to show forth his blessing upon the planet. So Genesis chapter 12, verse one says this. And now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in all your families of the earth, they shall be blessed. So this is a very, very important new beginning where God is basically calling this man Abraham. And so then it says in verse four, so Abraham went, or Abram went. The, the big idea here is that he obeys. So again, you can get in all the details as to exactly where Abram's at. We know that he's from this region called the Chaldeas, which is modern day Iraq. So we don't know too much about this guy Abraham, why God calls him, why God selects him, but what we do know is that he says yes to God, and he goes, he follows this God that he's somewhat unfamiliar with, and he is willing to follow God wherever it is that he was calling him to go. So once you jump forward now to Genesis chapter 15, and this is the main corpus of passages that we're going to read here today. I'm going to read through the entire chapter. I'll make some comments as I go through, and uh, we'll look at it all. So Genesis chapter 15 begins with this. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So what are these things? Well, we didn't read it. We kind of skipped over it. Um, Abram is now kind of a wealthy family. His lineage has become large. He has a nephew, a guy by the name of Lot. And uh, lot ends up getting kidnapped by these uh, conglomeration of five warlords. so imagine way back in the day you would have these tribes and these, they would have a tribal leader, a tribal head and they, these would basically become like cities with a very powerful person, warlord you know demigod, whatever you want to think about it at the top of the uh, at the top of the food chain within that context and culture so what we 're told is that five of these warlords Steal or kidnap Lot and all of his goods because obviously they're they're wealthy. And then what happens is that Abraham gathers together three hundred and some out of his own trained ninja warriors. Out of the word ninja, and he ends up going by night and he basically steals back Lot. It's pretty intense, pretty bloody, uh, a lot of carnage, and then ends up uh, Abraham is now victorious. So to imagine this is where the story picks up. God comes to him and says, "Don't be afraid." Uh, why is he afraid? Well, he just is now on the most wanted list by you know, five top warlords of the land. He just took something from them that they thought that they had acquired, right? And God comes to him and says, don't be afraid, for I will be your shield. It's very appropriate, right? Here's Abram, uh, worried for his life, and God says, hey, I'll be your shield. I'll protect you. That's heartwarming. And then it goes on to say, he says, do not be afraid, Abraham, for I will be your shield, and I will also be your very great Reward. But then Abraham says to God, so he's pondering, he's thinking about how will you be my great reward? And then Abraham tells God, or says to God, for Abraham then said to God, uh, What will you give to me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus. And then Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So what Abraham is basically referencing is that he's now a really old man. So imagine great-great-grandfather age Abraham. Really old man. He's so old that he's actually past the time of actually having children. And God gave him this promise some 20 or so years prior, saying, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, you kind of have to have children to have a great nation. Like, how are you going to get a great nation? You need children. You need offspring. And if God is going to give you something, again, this is a very patriarchal society, who are you going to give it to? So if you die, where are you going to now give your legacy away to? Who are you going to give your land to? Who are you going to bequeath it all to? And Abraham's basically wrestling with this. He says, but God, I don't have any children. You told me this, you know, 20 some years ago that I was going to be a great nation. I still don't have any children. And I'm a really, really old man now, past the age of childbearing. So he has this servant, he references this guy, this servant Eliezer, and then God basically says, no, not Eliezer, he's not going to be your uh, heir. And then the, but behold, the word of the Lord came, in verse 4, to him, and he says, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. What? He has no son. Follow the story. And then he brought him outside and he said, look outward towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is powerful. So Abraham stands outside, and I like this picture, and here's Abraham, I imagine him just standing outside, uh, you know, crisp evening there in the Middle East and looking up, and again, there's no light pollution, and he looks up and he sees this vast array there in the night sky, and God says, count it. Can you count it? Obviously, Abraham can't count it, and God says, but that's that's what your offspring's going to be like. You will have kids. You will have children, not through Eliezer. Your offspring will outnumber the stars. This is amazing. You know, the most shocking thing about this is Abraham does not have a son yet. So, how is all this going to happen? And here's what it goes on to say in verse 6 And Abraham believed the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. This is amazing. Like, here's, here's a great grandpa, aged man, has no children. God says, here's what I'm going to do, Abraham. I'm going to bless you beyond measure. You don't have any children yet, but I'm going to do this because of who I am. And all we're simply told by the storyteller here in the book of Genesis is it says, and Abraham believed God. And then God accounted that belief, that action towards the right relationship. So in the New Testament, we would say something like this. "You know, We are justified by faith, by grace, through faith, that our right relationship, So this is telling you right here, what does a right postured relationship before God look like? Working hard for God? Going to church? Reading your Bible more? Praying more? What does a right relationship look like before God? It looks like this. Simple, childlike trust in Yahweh's character. That's it. God, you are who you claim to be, and I trust you. I can think about that. Abraham's going on 20 some odd years from the very beginning when God began to say, hey, this whole thing is going to play out. 20 years later, fast forward 20 years, and there's still no child. God reaffirms to him this promise of a big family. Now, some would think that's, that's kind of cruel because you don't have a family yet. I can you imagine some of you have tried to have children, not been able to have children, you've been around people that have tried to have children. And if you keep asking him, hey, how he, have you conceived yet? That's pretty painful. It's a painful reminder of something that you really want but do not have. And yet God comes to him and says, you're going to have a family that numbers in the stars. And it says, Abraham trusted God. So a simple way of identifying a right relationship before God is trust. So it's a good time to even just pause and think about your relationship with God. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? That's it. Loyalty stems out of trust. But it begins with trust. Do I trust God? This seems to be the posture that God says, here's how I want you to respond to me. And it seems to be that this is the very area where Adam and Eve and their relationship with God went sideways. Distrust happened. It began with this narrative. I think of it this way. It began with temptation. And temptation is a narrative. It comes from the serpent saying, are you really sure that God can be trusted? And what happened was Adam and Eve developed what I like to just think of as suspicion. They became suspicious of God. And the question, which, which you cannot have suspicion and trust simultaneously. You know that, right? You cannot be uh, simultaneously distrusting of someone or suspicious of someone and trusting of them. So Adam and Eve become suspicious of God, which ultimately leads to the rebellion. But what God does to bring about A healing of this relationship is he gives revelation in the place of temptation. Revelation then leads to trust, if it's rightly responded to, or faith, what we would say faith. In the New Testament, the word trust and faith are actually kind of interchangeable words. And then that leads to obedience, or otherwise known as loyalty. What does it look like to be loyal to God? It looks like trusting him, like a child trusts a father. So Abraham trusts God, and it's accounted him for righteousness. Verse 7 And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth, the Chaldeans. He's going back to what we just read in chapter 12. And I gave you this land to possess. And then he said to him, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So apparently, in Abraham's interaction with God, the whole notion of trusting God, even though he hasn't had children and he's like really, really old, um, Apparently, that's easy to trust God. And then when it comes to the land, he's like, well, God, how am I supposed to know that I'm going to get this land? How, how can I be certain of that? And then God goes on to say to him, but uh, he said to the Lord, uh, how am I to know that I'm to possess this? Verse 9. And then he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. Because that's how we learn things, apparently. Go get a heifer. So this is where the story kind of makes a little bit of a turn. You're like, wait, what? God is wanting to affirm to Abraham That, hey, my promises to you, Abraham, can be absolutely trusted without any suspicion or doubt or worry. And then God says, go get a heifer, which is a bull. And then he goes on to say uh, in the storyline, and then uh, a female goat, uh, bring me a heifer that's three years old, a female goat that's three years old, and a ram that's three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, and he brought, him to, brought these to him, and he cut them in half and laid them all over against each other. And then he did not cut the birds in half, but when the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So again, what in the world is happening here, right? We read this and we're like, okay, I was following all this amazing nighttime star type stuff because that's what I just did last night up on you know, the, the hill and watched the sun set and the stars rise about this whole thing of like, a bad version of Kill Bill is not making any sense. What in the world is happening here? So here's what's happening. God is basically setting the stage, again, based within the ancient context and culture. What he's doing is, in a lot of ways, even the writer of the Bible assumes that you, the reader, are somewhat familiar with a variety of practices from the ancient East, so many of us obviously aren't familiar with it, so it's important for us to do some homework and think a little bit deeper on some of these subject matters. So with that, why don't you guys turn real quick to the book of uh, Jeremiah, chapter 34. Jeremiah 34, and this will give us a little bit of an insight into what in the world is happening right here. Jeremiah, chapter 34, verses 17 to 18. This is actually a really interesting story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, kind of recap some of it. Um, the children of Israel have this, uh, this moment where they come together and they realize that there was a handful of of the population that were actually living under enslavement, like actual slaves. And uh, they come to this moment of recognition. They're like, oh my gosh, we've got to release these slaves. So they come together, and they make this covenant with each other, and they make this commitment to follow along with the covenant to release the slaves. They release all the slaves. But we're told within a story that they end up, within a few days, a few weeks, we're not sure exactly, they go back to recapturing these slaves again. And now God's, God's ticked off. And he comes to Jeremiah. He's like, Jeremiah, I need you to go tell the people why I'm so angry with what they've done. They've gone back upon their word, and they've re-enslaved people that I wanted to be liberated. So within the storyline, what we're told basically is this. Again, I'll give you a freebie verse. It says this. Thus says the Lord. You have not obeyed me, proclaiming liberty to the slaves, in verse 18, and it says, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. He says, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two, and then they passed between its parts. So this little element, this little window into what's going on here, that for whatever reason, this idea of cutting an animal in half and then walking between the two parts, what you would typically do in the ancient... Eastern culture would be that to basically sign a covenant, to create an an actual binding covenant, right? Um, You would take an animal. You would cut it in half. It would be bloody. So you'd imagine all of that. And there on the ground are these two halves of this animal that you just massacred. And then the two parties that are agreeing to walk together would literally walk together side by side through the two halves that have been cut together or cut and set apart on the ground. So I want you to just imagine this in your mind. Again, it might sound odd or weird, but you just got you to you go along as someone following along in the journey here at the storyline, and hopefully the rest will end up making sense as a result of this. So as, as they walk through these two pieces, uh, lit, carcasses on the ground, the big idea behind that would be to say, if either one of us you know, break the covenant, may it be to us what happened to the carcass on this ground? In other words, whatever befell this carcass, will befall us. In other words, if we break or violate the covenant. So here's what God is saying to these people is that you guys have violated this thing and may, may it be to you what happened to the carcass because you guys violated the covenant. So go back to the story of Abram. Here he is on the ground or with, with God. And so obviously he cuts these animals in two. They're separated. So again, imagine in your mind this really bloody massacre blood everywhere, animals separated on the ground. And what happens when you have a bunch of dead animals on the ground in the middle of the desert? Vultures. So what's that Abraham doing? He's shooing the vultures away. Isn't this a great story? You guys did not expect this to be your teaching on Sunday, did you? You're welcome. Now it says in verse 12, and as the sun was going down, a deep Sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon them. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out from the great with great possessions. And as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a great old age, and they shall come back here and forth. Uh, in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet complete. So again, this is one of those passages where are like, what in the world is happening? So again, following the main idea and concept that's taking place right here, as Abram has severed these two things and two, he's obviously getting ready to walk with God down the aisle as a way that was common in that day of saying, Whatever this covenant entails, it deeply involves uh, someone, whoever is going to break or violate the covenant, uh, absorbing the consequences of this. Now, let me just pause right now and just say this. That might seem pretty barbaric and odd, but let me just put this into a very modernized sense. Let's say, for example, two people get married, and they're on the altar. They make a vow to each other, and they say something along the lines of, I vow to love you for the rest of my life, to be faithful to you till death do us Fast forward 10 years in the marriage. Husband has an affair with a secretary, or the woman is involved with some sort of internet pornography that she is addicted to, or some sort of cataclysmic event happens in that relationship. The question is in that realm of infidelity, has it brought deep consequences to that relationship? Absolutely. How painful are those consequences? Very painful. Is it possible to have forgiveness and move on? Yeah, it's possible. I've seen it a few times. But I also know that forgiveness is excruciatingly painful because somebody, if not both, has to absorb the wrong that was done. Somebody has to be willing to say, I'm sorry and I'm willing to pay back whatever needs to be paid back. But that process is very painful. And no one goes away unscathed. No one goes away without having to sacrifice, quote, unquote, sacrifice or pay the consequences of deep grief and anguish, pain and loss. So fast forward, Here's Abram, God, and they're about ready to walk through saying, whoever breaks this covenant will bear the consequences of what these bulls and goats and birds have all endured. And all of a sudden, a shock twist happens in the story. Abraham falls asleep, or God puts him out. Why? At this point, you're supposed to say, oh, no. How is the covenant going to come to completion? And this is, this is like the cliffhanger in the story. You're supposed to be shocked by this. Like, this, this cannot happen. You need two people, two parties to make the covenant happen. Or in other words, somebody. And here, what we see in the story is the final part, or I should say prior to the final part, Abram has this dream, and in this uh, dream he imagines uh, God speaking to him or God shows to him that in the future, this is probably, most scholars believe, a reference to the people of Israel going down to Egypt and being suppressed by Pharaoh and then being liberated from Egypt and coming out a prosperous nation and God bringing judgment upon Pharaoh as well. And then fast forward to the very end of the chapter and we'll wrap this up and move on. It says in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark. Now it's finally dark because in verse 12 it says and as the sun was going down, so this is process of, this is like golden hour. What a great golden hour, right? So in the midst of golden hour, animals are slaughtered all over the place. Abraham's taking a nap and all of a sudden we're introduced to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And he goes on to describe all the lands in which he's given it to. So what's happening here? So this image of this fiery pot is kind of a shocking one. But again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament imagery, you realize that usually when God shows up, God does not show up in this manifestation of a human being. God shows up in this manifestation of a bright light or fire or smoke. Um, It's a way in which uh, designates the, the, uh, I don't know how you would describe it, the the unified presence of God or the the concentrated presence of God, this bright light or this bright smoking presence. And this pot that now is on the scene while Abraham's taking a nap and these slaughter of these animals are there on the ground. All of a sudden, we're simply told by the narrator that this smoking pot begins to walk down the aisle in between these two pieces. And then at the very end of it, then it says, God said, This is my covenant with you, Abraham. This leaves a lot of questions, should leave a lot of questions in our mind. Well, what's Abraham's part? What is God suggesting? What's happening in this particular story? And then what we end up seeing is that from this point forward, that this is God saying, I'm assuming the responsibility. Question, does God know that Abraham and his descendants will fail? Does God know this? Is this information that God has? Of course he does. But see, here's the reality. Uh, Can I show the next slide? I think I have something up there. Uh, the, The reality is that God knows God has an intention in his mind to basically partner with humanity. Can we go to the next one, I think, just before or just after this? Here we go. So here's something I just want to throw out. The Old Testament narrative is this long history of Israel's fractured relationship with God. So if you're trying to figure out, like, what in the world, how do you want to make sense of Genesis all the way through the book of Malachi? um, Like, what's happening here? It's a very, very long, drawn-out narrative. Really in short, you can just think of it this way, in two ways. This is this constant, repeated, ongoing narrative of Israel, they keep failing. Israel keeps failing time and time again, over and over again, and yet there's this constant, repeated reality of God keeps faithful over and over and over again. Do you know that the first covenant in the Bible is actually God? Do you know that God is always the initiator of covenants? Do you know that? This is not human beings in this desperate search for God, in this desperate reaching out to God. God, we need help. This is God recognizing that mankind, humanity, has rebelled and run as far and as fast as they can away from God. And this is God saying, I want to make a covenant with you. I'm going to bind myself to you. And we see that God is committed to saving the world through human involvement. This is why God selected Abram in the very first place. I mean, again, if you think of it this way, there's a number of different ways in which if God's going to save the world, that he could save the world. But for whatever reason, God chooses to save the world through human involvement, human partnership, human cooperation, not that mankind saves itself in any way. That's not the case at all. Don't go down that path. But God chooses humanity to be the means by which he will bless and then beyond them, through them, they will be a blessing. And yet God knows that these same instruments will be unfaithful to him and that unfaithfulness will bring about devastating consequences, right? Again, it goes back to the big thing, is that when you are in covenant relationship with somebody, in other words, when you give your soul, your heart to somebody and you say those three very difficult words that you may choke on saying, I love you. That is an act of incredible vulnerability that opens yourself up to the most amazing bliss and joy and celebration that humanity could ever offer. But at the same time, it also leaves you insanely vulnerable and open to their failure. There's always a human failure element. And when humanity fails, when we fail each other, it brings deep pain and grief. God knows this. And within the story of Abraham, he himself walks down the aisle alone as if to say, I will bear the full weight of your failed obedience. This is so heavy. This is God's way of saying, this is what I will do for you. Next slide. We look at Israel, and I'll be very brief on this. That we see that Israel is in, brought into covenant relationship with God. It's the story of Exodus. God invites them to obey Him. Their part is to obey the terms of the covenant that were uh, d- delivered through the law and the Ten Commandments. And what I want to do is I want to think about just kind of fast-forwarding a little bit all the way down to the book of the book of Luke going on to the New Testament, because this is where our story kind of climaxes. So what we see is in the New Testament. Um, keeping in our mind the idea of this covenant with Abraham, God partnering with Abraham, but though at the same time recognizing that Abraham will not be a faithful partner. Abraham will fail. Abraham has the element of human error. Abraham will be unfaithful. His descendants will be unfaithful. Israel will be unfaithful. David will be unfaithful over and over and over again. And yet this is God's way of saying, I will assume the responsibility of the consequences. But it's not until we come to the New Testament that we see to what degree God chooses to shoulder the consequences of not only Abraham, Israel, David's, but all humanity's rebellion against their creator. So we see Jesus going around Galilee doing good. That Jesus actually calls 12 disciples. Like, why 12? You always kind of wonder, like, why 12? Why not 14? Why not 30? Why 12? Well, what Jesus is doing is very clearly, he's, he's reconstituting what scholars would say reconstituting Israel, a new Israel around himself. He's basically saying 12 tribes, 12 leaders, 12 disciples around me, a new Israel, the faithful one. And this is what the New Testament would tell us that Jesus was a prophet but he's far more than a prophet. Because what we come to find out and discover through the stories of the Gospels as well as the rest of the New Testament, that he's far more than just simply a Jewish male in his mid-30s, early 30s, living out total obedience to Yahweh. But he's actually Yahweh come in the flesh. Perfect man, fully God, to do for Israel, to do for David, to do for Abraham. And to do for Adam and all humanity what they have been incapable of doing themselves. To live in total obedience. So what we see with Jesus, that Jesus, for example, he lives by trust in the Father. And he teaches his new family to do the same thing. Just like Abraham. Everything Jesus does is just and right. What does justice and righteousness look like? Well, it looks like Jesus walking up to someone who's blind and saying, let me heal you. Looks like Jesus walking up to people, 5,000 or 4,000 in a field who have nothing to eat and saying, let me help you who are my neighbor by giving you some food. We see that Jesus is living out in total justice and righteousness. And we also then see Jesus is truly the obedient, the truly obedient Israelite that empowers his followers to become truly obedient by following the lead of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we see that Jesus is the king from the line of David, who inaugurates God's kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection. And he ultimately promises that his Holy Spirit, his presence, his breath, will empower those who follow him into this world to be and live like him. And then finally, we see that Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem It's that week before his death and crucifixion, and he comes into Jerusalem. People are throwing palm branches down basically hailing him, the king of David. Jesus comes in, and one of the very uh, most climactic acts that Jesus does with his disciples is actually found in the book of Luke chapter 22. I'll read this and wrap this up, that Jesus sits down with his disciples. I just want to read this to you. I want you to listen to it. I want you to take it in. I want you to feel it and think about it. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says, now when the hour had come, meaning the hour of his betrayal, of his arrest, of his torture, of his death. When his hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles were then with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer what Jesus is doing is basically sitting down with his disciples and commemorating one of the most important meals that any Jewish person could uh, reenact now again the way that Jews oftentimes would would celebrate is not the way that we typically would celebrate you know fourth of July and remembering something in fact a lot of us we don't even really think about what fourth of July is we just blow things up and eat really bad food and we call it a day, like we just celebrated for the July. But we, we re, what Jews do is actually reenact it. They see themselves as being a part of the story. And by drinking the cup, by eating the bread, by eating the food, as a way of saying what happened to our ancestors, you know, 1800, 2000 or so years ago, is, is what we are now reentering into this very moment. We are watching the hand of Yahweh take care of us. And this is what Jesus is doing, sitting down with his disciples. He's about to eat this meal, and remember one of the most climactic moments in Israel's history, the day in which they became liberated by the hand of Yahweh. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, and then he took the bread, and then he had given thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this remembrance of me. Jesus takes the bread. Divides it in half. Imagine the bread, the picture of sacrifice, broken, divided. Think of the heifer on the ground. The other parts of the animals on the ground. Jesus, Jesus saying, "This is my body; it will be broken for you. Take this and partake, and enter in to what's happening." And he goes on to say, and he says, and likewise, he took the cup after it they had eaten, and then he says, "This cup is poured out for you." Listen to what he says. It is a covenant that is new in my blood. This is literally Jesus saying there's a brand new covenant that's being remade. Why? Because it's been failed repeatedly over and over and over again. This is Jesus saying, with all this rich history in the past, saying, I will be the one that will go it alone. What is about to happen within the next 24 hours, I will take upon myself the very consequences of Israel's rebellion and rejection and voiding the partnership with God. Because again, that may be shocking to us, but remember, anytime you are in partnership or covenant with somebody and somebody violates the terms of that partnership, what does it bring? Pain, consequences, alienation, destruction. And Jesus is saying, yes, Israel has been consistently over and overtly rebellious, to Yahweh and yet I will take upon myself the consequences of that pain. And this, what we see, Jesus on the cross, is not God angrily punishing Jesus. What we see is Jesus, God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. This is God saying I will absorb the pain, the consequences, the defilement, the destruction, the rebellion of all sin of all mankind, upon myself. And what we see three days later, he rises again from the dead, as if to say, the price has been fully paid. So I don't know how this story resonates with you. but The fact of the matter is, is that this story should be something that draws you into it. Because all of us, to some degree, we are familiar with what brokenness looks like. We're familiar with that. But the question is oftentimes we really wrestle with is how do we get past brokenness? How do we find wholeness? How do we find shalom? Or how do we find some level of equilibrium in a life that is mostly ordained or defined by brokenness? How do we get there? And what the story that we just read and discovered and and looked at tells us is that what God does is he steps into the fray, steps in between the aisle between the brokenness, and he says, I will take upon myself every consequence that comes as a result of your infidelity upon myself. I don't know how you think about God, but my hope would be that you would think about God in this context as one that loves you, the one that cares for you, the one that is actually willing to absorb the consequences of our rebellion and distrust and cynicism into himself in order to give us a new life. So when I think about it this way, we really, oftentimes, how we respond to our failure. I made a little slide to think of this. Is that These are some of the ways in which we respond to failure and brokenness and our sin. Number one, we, we live in denial. We just deny it. We just tell ourselves it's not real. We just tell ourselves it's not actually happening. My pain that I'm experiencing, the grief, the loss, we just deny, number two, we narcoticize ourselves, we get drunk, we take drugs, we download porn, we do something to just narcoticize the pain. Thirdly, we self-justify, which is really nothing more than hiding behind newly crafted fig leaves. We do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We're no different. We break the heart of God, we break the relationship that our Yahweh, that Yahweh, our creator God has established. And yet we oftentimes have a way to just self justifying And we say, well, it's, you know, it's my heritage or it's my background or it's my, you know, it's, I, I, I did this because someone else did X, Y, and Z to me and I'm, I'm deserving of some form of retaliation. So we justify rather than actually doing what the final thing is that we should be doing is repent, to turn from these things and then to welcome, to invite God into the very midst of our brokenness and ask him to put it right. And the way he does that is exactly what we see him doing on the cross, is putting it right, that which has been broken. And that invites us over and over again back to a renewed posture, the posture of one that simply says, trust, God, I trust you. I trust you with my past. I trust you with my brokenness. I trust you with my confusion. I trust you with the things that don't make sense to me. I trust you with the things that feel very odd or challenging or hard. I trust you because you are trustworthy. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what types of responses maybe you have encountered, but the invitation is always the same to turn from those other dysfunctional, broken forms of responding that oftentimes just do nothing more than compound the guilt and hurt and the brokenness, to turn to God, just like Abraham turned to God and trusted Him, even in the midst of what seems ludicrous to say God I will trust you even in the midst of a society or a culture that constantly mocks or shames or thinks is silly this story that we call the gospel because at the end of the day that's exactly what this is Is this not good news that we have a God that doesn't shame us in our brokenness that doesn't mock us that doesn't reject us that doesn't see the level and the depth of our rebellion and brokenness and say I'm done with you I'm divorcing you but instead, he says, I will assume the pain, the consequences, the grief, into you know, myself, so that you can go free. That's what I invite you into right now. So we're going to respond by singing, by eating the bread, drinking the cup as we do every week. It's a reminder to us. Of worshiping, come on up right now. How about that? That awkward stance, like, what do we do? How about worshiping, come on up right now. How about we all stand? We eat the bread, we drink the cup as a reminder that we have this God that invites us to a table. And a table is where intimate relationship and conversation happens. And this is a God that says, come to me. Let's talk. Give to me your pain, your loss, your grief, your hurt, your sin, your defilement. And I will make you new. So if you're here this morning and let's say you're not a Christian or you're wrestling with faith or you're questioning, you're wondering how does this whole faith thing work? work my invitation to you would be to trust this god and it's simple as you just in whatever way that you can even think of just praying to him just saying god receive me forgive me wash me transform me simple as that god hears those types of prayers If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus and whatever types of circumstances that may be going on in your life, maybe this is an invitation for you to just see God in a whole new way like you've never seen before and for you to trust him, to, to be brought back into this renewed relationship with him, to be a part of what God's doing in this world, to by the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives to us to walk with him, to love him, to serve him, to walk with him in a new way whereby we turn back upon things that were once enslaving us, desires and actions and attitudes that were once controlling us, to recognize that this doesn't just happen overnight. It happens by daily renewal and partnership with Yahweh, the one who loves you and gave himself for you. So I'm gonna pray, we'll sing, we'll respond by partaking of communion. If you're here this morning and you have need for prayer for anything, in fact, I'm gonna invite you, if you need prayer, no matter who you are, whether you're not a Christian or you are a Christian, you just need to pray for anything that's going on to come to the front to just kneel before God and I'll be up here. We'll have some other leaders that will be up here as well. We'd love to just pray for you. So that invitation is to come forward, to come out of where you're sitting, to come stand, kneel before God and to worship him. So let me pray. God, thank you for the depth of your love that you have for us. God, you demonstrated your love to us and that even while we were still rebels, Jesus, Died for us, so God. Even now, we respond to you in song, partaking communion, and in prayer. So that's you. You need prayer. Just come on down right now.